The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner, continued, Cassette 5, Side 1. Criticism is the possessed man's fight against possession as such, against all possession, a fight which is founded in the consciousness that everywhere possession, or as the critic calls it, a religious and theological attitude, is extant. He knows that people stand in a religious or believing attitude not only toward God, but toward other ideas as well, like right, the state, law. He recognizes possession in all places. So he wants to break up thoughts by thinking. But I say only thoughtlessness really saves me from thoughts. It is not thinking, but my thoughtlessness, or I the unthinkable, incomprehensible, that frees me from possession. A jerk does me the service of the most anxious thinking. A stretching of the limbs shakes off the torment of thoughts. A leap upward hurls from my breast the nightmare of the religious world. A jubilant hoopla throws off year-long burdens. But the monstrous significance of unthinking jubilation could not be recognized in the long night of thinking and believing. What clumsiness and frivolity to want to solve the most difficult problems, acquit yourself of the most comprehensive tasks by a breaking off? But have you tasks if you do not set them to yourself? So long as you set them, you will not give them up. And I certainly do not care if you think, and thinking create a thousand thoughts. But you who have set the tasks, are you not to be able to upset them again? Must you be bound to these tasks, and must they become absolute tasks? To cite only one thing, the government has been disparaged on account of its resorting to forcible means against thoughts, interfering against the press by means of the police power of the censorship, and making a personal fight out of a literary one as if it were solely a matter of thoughts, and as if one's attitude toward thoughts must be unselfish, self-denying, and self-sacrificing. Do not those thoughts attack the governing parties themselves, and so call out egoism? And do the thinkers not set before the attacked ones the religious demand to reverence the power of thought, of ideas? They are to succumb voluntarily and resignedly, because the divine power of thought, Minerva, fights on their enemy's side. Why, that would be an act of possession, a religious sacrifice. To be sure, the governing parties are themselves held fast in a religious bias and follow the leading power of an idea or a faith. But they are at the same time unconfessed egoists, and right here, against the enemy, their pent-up egoism breaks loose. Possessed in their faith, they are at the same time unpossessed by their opponent's faith. They are egoists toward this. If one wants to make them a reproach, it could only be the converse, to wit, that they are possessed by their ideas. Against thoughts, no egoistic power is to appear, no police power and the like, so the believers in thinking believe. But thinking and its thoughts are not sacred to me, and I defend my skin against them as against other things. That may be an unreasonable defense, but if I am in duty bound to reason, then I, like Abraham, must sacrifice my dearest to it. In the kingdom of thought, which, like that of faith, is the kingdom of heaven, everyone is assuredly wrong who uses unthinking force, just as everyone is wrong who, in the kingdom of love, behaves unlovingly, or, although he is a Christian and therefore lives in the kingdom of love, yet acts unchristianly. In these kingdoms, to which he supposes himself to belong, though he nevertheless throws off their laws, he is a sinner, or egoist. But it is only when he becomes a criminal against these kingdoms that he can throw off their dominion. Here, too, the result is this, that the fight of the thinkers against the government is indeed in the right, namely in might, 
so far as it is carried on against the government's thoughts. The government is dumb and does not succeed in making any literary rejoinder to speak of, but is, on the other hand, in the wrong, to wit, in impotence, so far as it does not succeed in bringing into the field anything but thoughts against a personal power. The egoistic power stops the mouths of the thinkers. The theoretical fight cannot complete the victory, and the sacred power of thought succumbs to the might of egoism. Only the egoistic fight, the fight of egoists on both sides, clears up everything. This last now, to make thinking an affair of egoistic option, an affair of the single person, a mere pastime or hobby, as it were, and to take from it the importance of being the last decisive power, this degradation and desecration of thinking, this equalization of the unthinking and thoughtful ego, this clumsy but real equality, criticism is not able to produce, because it itself is only the priest of thinking, and sees nothing beyond thinking but the deluge. Criticism does indeed affirm that free criticism may overcome the state, but at the same time it defends itself against the reproach which is laid upon it by the state government, that it is self-will and impudence. It thinks then that self-will and impudence may not overcome, it alone may. The truth is rather the reverse. The state can be really overcome only by impudent self-will. It may now, to conclude with this, be clear that in the critic's new change of front he has not transformed himself, but only made good an oversight, disentangled a subject, and is saying too much when he speaks of criticism criticizing itself. It, or rather he, has only criticized its oversight and cleared it of its inconsistencies. If he wanted to criticize criticism, he would have to look and see if there was anything in its presupposition. I, on my part, start from a presupposition in presupposing myself. But my presupposition does not struggle for its perfection, like man struggling for his perfection, but only serves me to enjoy it and consume it. I consume my presupposition, and nothing else, and exist only in consuming it. But that presupposition is therefore not a presupposition at all. For, as I am the unique, I know nothing of the duality of a presupposing and a presupposed ego, an incomplete and a complete ego or man. But this, that I consume myself, means only that I am. I do not presuppose myself, because I am every moment just positing or creating myself. And am I only by being not presupposed, but posited, and again, posited only in the moment when I posit myself. That is, I am creator and creature in one. If the presuppositions that have hitherto been current are to melt away in a full dissolution, they must not be dissolved into a higher presupposition again, a thought or thinking itself, criticism. For that dissolution is to be for my good, otherwise it would belong only in the series of the innumerable dissolutions, which, in favor of others, as this very man, God, the state, pure morality, etc., declared old truths to be untruths, and did away with long-fostered presuppositions. Part Second, I. At the entrance of the modern time stands the God-man. At its exit, will only the God in the God-man evaporate? And can the God-man really die if only the God in him dies? They did not think of this question and thought they were through when, in our days, they brought to a victorious end the work of the illumination, the vanquishing of God. They did not notice that man has killed God in order to become now soul God on high. 
the other world outside us is indeed brushed away and the great undertaking of the illuminators completed. But the other world in us has become a new heaven and calls us forth to renewed heaven storming. God has had to give place, yet not to us, but to man. How can you believe that the God-man is dead before the man in him, besides the God, is dead? Chapter 3. Ownness Does not the spirit thirst for freedom? Alas, not my spirit alone, my body too thirsts for it hourly. When before the odorous castle kitchen my nose tells my palate of the savory dishes that are being prepared therein, it feels a fearful pining at its dry bread. When my eyes tell the hardened back about soft down on which one may lie more delightfully than on its compressed straw, a suppressed rage seizes it. When, but let us not follow the pains further. And you call that a longing for freedom? What do you want to become free from then? From your hard tack and your straw bed? Then throw them away. But that seems not to serve you. You want rather to have the freedom to enjoy delicious foods and downy beds. Are men to give you this freedom? Are they to permit it to you? You do not hope that from their philanthropy, because you know they all think like you. Each is the nearest to himself. How therefore do you mean to come to the enjoyment of those foods and beds? Evidently not otherwise than in making them your property. If you think it over rightly, you do not want the freedom to have all these fine things, for with this freedom you still do not have them. You want really to have them, to call them yours, and possess them as your property. Of what use is a freedom to you, indeed, if it brings in nothing? And if you became free from everything, you would no longer have anything, for freedom is empty of substance. Whoso knows not how to make use of it, for him it has no value, this useless permission. But how I make use of it depends on my personality. I have no objection to freedom, but I wish more than freedom for you. You should not merely be rid of what you do not want. You should not only be a free man, you should be an owner, too. Free from what? Oh, what is there that cannot be shaken off? The yoke of serfdom, of sovereignty, of aristocracy and princes, the dominion of the desires and passions, yes, even the dominion of one's own will, of self-will, for the completest self-denial is nothing but freedom. Freedom, to wit, from self-determination, from one's own self. And the craving for freedom as for something absolute, worthy of every praise, deprived us of ownness. It created self-denial. However, the freer I become, the more compulsion piles up before my eyes, and the more impotent I feel myself. The unfree son of the wilderness does not yet feel anything of all the limits that crowd a civilized man. He seems to himself freer than this latter. In the measure that I conquer freedom for myself, I create for myself new bounds and new tasks. If I have invented railroads, I feel myself weak again, because I cannot yet sail through the skies like the bird. And if I have solved a problem whose obscurity disturbed my mind, at once there await me innumerable others, whose perplexities impede my progress, dim my free gaze, make the limits of my freedom painfully sensible to me. Now that you have become free from sin, you have become servants of righteousness. Republicans, in their broad freedom, do they not become servants of the law? How true Christian hearts at all times long to become free! 
How they pined to see themselves delivered from the bonds of this earth life. They looked out toward the land of freedom. The Jerusalem that is above is the free woman. She is the mother of us all. Galatians 4.26 Being free from anything means only being clear or rid. He is free from headache is equal to he is rid of it. He is free from this prejudice is equal to he has never conceived it or he has got rid of it. In less, we complete the freedom recommended by Christianity in sinless, godless, morality-less, etc. Freedom is the doctrine of Christianity. Ye dear brethren are called to freedom. So speak and so do as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Must we then, because freedom betrays itself as a Christian ideal, give it up? No. Nothing is to be lost, freedom no more than the rest, but it is to become our own, and in the form of freedom it cannot. What a difference between freedom and ownness. One can get rid of a great many things. One yet does not get rid of all. One becomes free from much, not from everything. Inwardly, one may be free in spite of the condition of slavery, although, too, it is again only from all sorts of things, not from everything, but from the whip, the domineering temper of the master. One does not, as slave, become free. Freedom lives only in the realm of dreams. Ownness, on the contrary, is my whole being and existence. It is I myself. I am free from what I am rid of, owner of what I have in my power or what I control. My own I am at all times and under all circumstances, if I know how to have myself and do not throw myself away on others. To be free is something that I cannot truly will, because I cannot make it, cannot create it. I can only wish it and aspire toward it, for it remains an ideal, a spook. The fetters of reality cut the sharpest welts in my flesh every moment, but my own I remain. Given up as serf to a master, I think only of myself and my advantage. His blows strike me indeed. I am not free from them, but I endure them only for my benefit, perhaps in order to deceive him and make him secure by the semblance of patience, or, again, not to draw worse upon myself by contumacy. But as I keep my eye on myself and my selfishness, I take by the forelock the first good opportunity to trample the slaveholder into the dust. That I then become free from him and his whip is only the consequence of my antecedent egoism. Here one perhaps says I was free even in the condition of slavery, to wit, intrinsically or inwardly. But intrinsically free is not really free, and inwardly is not outwardly. I was own, on the other hand, my own altogether, inwardly and outwardly. Under the dominion of a cruel master, my body is not free from torments and lashes, but it is my bones that moan under the torture, my fibers that quiver under the blows, and I moan because my body moans. That I sigh and shiver proves that I have not yet lost myself, that I am still my own. My leg is not free from the master's stick, but it is my leg and is inseparable. Let him tear it off me, and look and see if he still has my leg. He retains in his hand nothing but the corpse of my leg, which is as little my leg as a dead dog is still a dog. A dog has a pulsating heart. A so-called dead dog has none, and is therefore no longer a dog. 
If one opines that a slave may yet be inwardly free, he says, in fact, only the most indisputable and trivial thing. For who is going to assert that any man is holy without freedom? If I am an eye-servant, can I therefore not be free from innumerable things, from faith in Zeus, from the desire for fame, and the like? Why then should not a whipped slave also be able to be inwardly free from unchristian sentiments, from hatred of his enemy, etc.? He then has Christian freedom, is rid of the unchristian. But has he absolute freedom, freedom from everything, as from the Christian delusion or from bodily pain? In the meantime, all this seems to be said more against names than against the thing. But is the name indifferent, and has not a word, a shibboleth, always inspired and fooled men? Yet between freedom and ownness there lies still a deeper chasm than the mere difference of the words. All the world desires freedom, all long for its reign to come. O oh, enchantingly beautiful dream of a blooming reign of freedom, a free human race! Who has not dreamed it? So men shall become free, entirely free, free from all constraint. From all constraint? Really? From all? Are they never to put constraint on themselves any more? Oh yes, that of course. Don't you see? That is no constraint at all. Well then, at any rate, they are to become free from religious faith, from the strict duties of morality, from the inexorability of the law, from what a fearful misunderstanding. Well, what are they to be free from then, and what not? The lovely dream is dissipated. Awakened, one rubs his half-opened eyes and stares at the prosaic questioner. What men are to be free from? From blind credulity, cries one. What's that? exclaims another. All faith is blind credulity. They must become free from all faith. No, no, for God's sake, inveighs the first again. Do not cast all faith from you, else the power of brutality breaks in. We must have the republic. A third makes himself heard, and become free from all commanding lords. There is no help in that, says a fourth. We only get a new lord then, a dominant majority. Let us rather free ourselves from this dreadful inequality. O oh, hapless equality, already I hear your plebeian roar again. How I had dreamed so beautifully just now of a paradise of freedom, and what impudence and licentiousness now raises its wild clamor. Thus the first laments, and gets on his feet to grasp the sword against unmeasured freedom. Soon we no longer hear anything but the clashing of the swords, of the disagreeing dreamers of freedom. What the craving for freedom has always come to has been the desire for a particular freedom, such as freedom of faith. The believing man wanted to be free and independent. Of what? Of faith, perhaps? No, but of the inquisitors of faith. So now, political or civil freedom. The citizen wants to become free, not from citizenhood, but from bureaucracy, the arbitrariness of princes, and the like. Prince Metternich once said he had found a way that was adapted to guide men in the path of genuine freedom for all the future. The Count of Provence ran away from France precisely at the time when she was preparing the reign of freedom, and said, My imprisonment had become intolerable to me. I had only one passion, the desire for freedom. I thought only of it. The craving for a particular freedom always includes the purpose of a new dominion, as it was with the revolution, which indeed could give its defenders the uplifting feeling that they were fighting for freedom, but in truth only because they were after a particular freedom, therefore a new dominion, the dominion of the law. Freedom you all want. You want freedom. 
Why then do you higgle over a more or less? Freedom can only be the whole of freedom. A piece of freedom is not freedom. You despair of the possibility of obtaining the whole of freedom, freedom from everything. Yes, you consider it insanity even to wish this. Well, then leave off chasing after the phantom and spend your pains on something better than the unattainable. Ah, but there is nothing better than freedom. What have you then when you have freedom? For I will not speak here of your piecemeal bits of freedom, complete freedom. Then you are rid of everything that embarrasses you, everything, and there is probably nothing that does not once in your life embarrass you and cause you inconvenience. And for whose sake then did you want to be rid of it? Doubtless, for your sake, because it is in your way. But if something were not inconvenient to you, if, on the contrary, it were quite to your mind, such as the gently but irresistibly commanding look of your loved one, then you would not want to be rid of it and free from it. Why not? For your sake, again. So you take yourselves as measure and judge over all. You gladly let freedom go when unfreedom, the sweet service of love, suits you, and you take up your freedom again on occasion when it begins to suit you better. That is, supposing, which is not the point here, that you are not afraid of such a repeal of the union for other, perhaps, religious reasons. Why will you not take courage now to really make yourselves the central point and the main thing altogether? Why grasp in the air at freedom, your dream? Are you your dream? Do not begin by inquiring of your dreams, your notions, your thoughts, for that is all hollow theory. Ask yourselves and ask after yourselves. That is practical, and you know you want very much to be practical. But there the one hearkens what his God, of course what he thinks of at the name God is his God, may be going to say to it, and another what his moral feelings, his conscience, his feeling of duty may determine about it, and a third calculates what folks will think of it. And when each has thus asked his Lord God, Folks are a Lord God, just as good as, nay, even more compact than, the other worldly and imaginary one, vox populi, vox dei. Then he accommodates himself to his Lord's will, and listens no more at all for what he himself would like to say and decide. Therefore turn to yourselves rather than to your gods or idols. Bring out from yourselves what is in you. Bring it to the light. Bring yourselves to revelation. How one acts only from himself and asks after nothing further, the Christians have realized in the notion, God. He acts as it pleases him. And foolish man, who could do just so, is to act as it pleases God instead. If it is said that even God proceeds according to eternal laws, that too fits me, since I too cannot get out of my skin, but have my law in my whole nature, in myself. But one needs only admonish you of yourselves to bring you to despair at once. What am I, each of you asks himself, an abyss of lawless and unregulated impulses, desires, wishes, passions, a chaos without light or guiding star? How am I to obtain a correct answer if, without regard to God's commandments or to the duties which morality prescribes, without regard to the voice of reason, which in the course of history, after bitter experiences, has exalted the best and most reasonable thing into law, I simply appeal to myself. My passion would advise me to do the most senseless thing possible. Thus each deems himself the devil. 
For if, so far as he is unconcerned about religion, he only deemed himself a beast, he would easily find that the beast, which does follow only its impulse, as it were, its advice, does not advise and impel itself to do the most senseless things, but takes very correct steps. But the habit of the religious way of thinking has biased our mind so grievously that we are terrified at ourselves in our nakedness and naturalness. It has degraded us so that we deem ourselves depraved by nature, born devils. Of course, it comes into your head at once that your calling requires you to do the good, the moral, the right. Now, if you ask yourselves what is to be done, how can the right voice sound forth from you, the voice which points the way of the good, the right, the true? What concord have God and Belial? But what would you think if one answered you by saying, that one is to listen to God, conscience, duties, laws, and so forth, is flim-flam, with which people have stuffed your head and heart and made you crazy. And if he asked you how it is that you know so surely that the voice of nature is a seducer, and if he even demanded of you to turn the thing about, and actually to deem the voice of God and conscience to be the devil's work, there are such graceless men. How will you settle them? You cannot appeal to your parsons, parents, and good men, for precisely these are designated by them as your seducers, as the true seducers and corrupters of youth, who busily so broadcast the tares of self-contempt and reverence to God, who fill young hearts with mud and young heads with stupidity. But now those people go on and ask, for whose sake do you care about God's and the other commandments? You surely do not suppose that this is done merely out of complaisance toward God. No, you are doing it for your sake again. Here too, therefore, you are the main thing, and each must say to himself, I am everything to myself, and I do everything on my account. If it ever became clear to you that God, the commandments, and so on, only harm you, that they reduce and ruin you, to a certainty you would throw them from you, just as the Christians once condemned Apollo or Minerva or heathen morality. They did indeed put in the place of these Christ and afterward Mary, as well as a Christian morality, but they did this for the sake of their soul's welfare too, therefore out of egoism or ownness. And it was by this egoism, this ownness, that they got rid of the old world of gods and became free from it. Ownness created a new freedom, for ownness is the creator of everything, as genius, a definite ownness, which is always originality, has for a long time already been looked upon as the creator of new productions that have a place in the history of the world. If your efforts are ever to make freedom the issue, then exhaust freedom's demands. Who is it that is to become free? You, I, we. Free from what? from everything that is not you, not I, not we. I, therefore, am the kernel that is to be delivered from all wrappings and freed from all cramping shells. What is left when I have been freed from everything that is not I? Only I, nothing but I. But freedom has nothing to offer to this I himself. As to what is now to happen further, after I have become free, freedom is silent as our governments, when the prisoner's time is up, merely let him go, thrusting him out into abandonment. Now why, if freedom is striven after for love of the I, after all, why not choose the I himself as beginning, middle, and end? Am I not worth more than freedom? Is it not I that make myself free, 
Am not I the first? Even unfree, even laid in a thousand fetters, I yet am, and I am not, like freedom, extant only in the future and in hopes, but even as the most abject of slaves, I am present. Think that over well, and decide whether you will place on your banner the dream of freedom or the resolution of egoism, of ownness. Freedom awakens your rage against everything that is not you. Egoism calls you to joy over yourselves, to self-enjoyment. Freedom is and remains a longing, a romantic plaint, a Christian hope for unearthliness and futurity. Ownness is a reality which of itself removes just so much unfreedom as by barring your own way hinders you. What does not disturb you, you will not want to renounce. And if it begins to disturb you, why you know that you must obey yourselves rather than men. Freedom teaches only get yourselves rid, relieve yourselves of everything burdensome. It does not teach you who you yourselves are. Rid, rid, so call, get rid even of yourselves, deny yourselves. But ownness calls you back to yourselves. It says, come to yourself. Under the aegis of freedom, you get rid of many kinds of things, but something new pinches you again. You are rid of the evil one. Evil is left. As own, you are really rid of everything, and what clings to you, you have accepted. It is your choice and your pleasure. The own man is the free-born, the man free to begin with. The free man, on the contrary, is only the eleutheromaniac, the dreamer and enthusiast. The former is originally free, because he recognizes nothing but himself. He does not need to free himself first, because at the start he rejects everything outside himself, because he prizes nothing more than himself, rates nothing higher, because, in short, he starts from himself and comes to himself. Constrained by childish respect, he is nevertheless already working at freeing himself from this constraint. Ownness works in the little egoist and procures him the desired freedom. Thousands of years of civilization have obscured to you what you are, have made you believe you are not egoists, but are called to be idealists, good men. Shake that off. Do not seek for freedom, which does precisely deprive you of yourselves in self-denial, but seek for yourselves. Become egoists. Become each of you an almighty ego. Or, more clearly, just recognize yourselves again. Just recognize what you really are, and let go your hypocritical endeavors, your foolish mania to be something else than you are. Hypocritical, I call them, because you have yet remained egoists all these thousands of years, but sleeping, self-deceiving, crazy egoists, you hotan timoruminoses, you self-tormentors, Never yet has a religion been able to dispense with promises, whether they referred us to the other world or to this, long life, etc. For man is mercenary and does nothing gratis. But how about that doing the good for the good's sake, without prospect of reward? As if here, too, the pay was not contained in the satisfaction that it is to afford. Even religion, therefore, is founded on our egoism and exploits it, Calculated for our desires, it stifles many others for the sake of one. This then gives the phenomenon of cheated egoism, where I satisfy not myself, but one of my desires, such as the impulse toward blessedness. Religion promises me the supreme good. To gain this, I no longer regard any other of my desires and do not slake them. 
All your doings are unconfessed, secret, covert, and concealed egoism. But because they are egoism that you are unwilling to confess to yourselves, that you keep secret from yourselves, hence not manifest and public egoism, consequently unconscious egoism, therefore they are not egoism, but thraldom, service, self-renunciation. You are egoists, and you are not, since you renounce egoism. Where you seem most to be such, you have drawn upon the word egoist, loathing and contempt. I secure my freedom with regard to the world in the degree that I make the world my own, gain it, and take possession of it for myself, by whatever might, by that of persuasion, of petition, of categorical demand, yes, even by hypocrisy, cheating, etc. For the means that I use for it are determined by what I am. If I am weak, I have only weak means, like the aforesaid, which yet are good enough for a considerable part of the world. Besides, cheating, hypocrisy, lying, look worse than they are. Who has not cheated the police, the law? Who has not quickly taken on an air of honorable loyalty before the sheriff's officer who meets him, in order to conceal an illegality that may have been committed? He who has not done it has simply let violence be done to him. He was a weakling from conscience. I know that my freedom is diminished even by my not being able to carry out my will on another object, be this other something without will, like a rock, or something with will, like a government, an individual. I deny my ownness when, in presence of another, I give myself up, give way, desist, submit, therefore by loyalty, submission. For it is one thing when I give up my previous course because it does not lead to the goal, and therefore turn out of a wrong road. It is another when I yield myself a prisoner. I get around a rock that stands in my way till I have powder enough to blast it. I get around the laws of a people till I have gathered strength to overthrow them. Because I cannot grasp the moon, is it therefore to be sacred to me, an astarte? If I only could grasp you, I surely would. And if I only find a means to get up to you, you shall not frighten me. You inapprehensible one, you shall remain inapprehensible to me only till I have acquired the might for apprehension, and call you my own. I do not give myself up before you, but only bide my time. Even if for the present I put up with my inability to touch you, I yet remember it against you. Vigorous men have always done so. When the loyal had exalted an unsubdued power to be their master, and had adored it, when they had demanded adoration from all, then there came some such son of nature who would not loyally submit, and drove the adored power from its inaccessible Olympus. He cried his, Stand still, to the rolling sun, and made the earth go round. The loyal had to make the best of it. He laid his axe to the sacred oaks, and the loyal were astonished that no heavenly fire consumed him. He threw the Pope off Peter's chair, and the loyal had no way to hinder it. He is tearing down the divine right business, and the loyal croak in vain, and at last are silent. My freedom becomes complete only when it is my might. But by this I cease to be a merely free man, and become an own man. Why is the freedom of the peoples a hollow word? Because the peoples have no might. With a breath of the living ego I blow peoples over, be it the breath of a Nero, a Chinese emperor, or a poor writer. Why is it that the German legislatures pine in vain for freedom, and are lectured for it by the cabinet ministers? Because they are not of the mighty. Might is a fine thing, and useful for many purposes. 
for one goes further with a handful of might than with a bagful of right. You long for freedom, you fools. If you took might, freedom would come of itself. See, he who has might stands above the law. How does this prospect taste to you, you law-abiding people? But you have no taste. The cry for freedom rings loudly all around, but is it felt and known what a donated or chartered freedom must mean? It is not recognized in the full amplitude of the word that all freedom is essentially self-liberation, that I can have only so much freedom as I procure for myself by my ownness. Of what use is it to sheep that no one abridges their freedom of speech? They stick to bleating. Give one who is inwardly a Mohammedan, a Jew, or a Christian permission to speak what he likes, he will yet utter only narrow-minded stuff. If, on the contrary, certain others rob you of the freedom of speaking and hearing, they know quite rightly wherein lies their temporary advantage, as you would perhaps be able to say and hear something whereby those certain persons would lose their credit. If they nevertheless give you freedom, they are simply knaves who give more than they have. For then they give you nothing of their own but stolen wares. They give you your own freedom, the freedom that you must take for yourselves, and they give it to you only that you may not take it and call the thieves and cheats to an account to boot. In their slyness they know well that given, chartered freedom is no freedom, since only the freedom one takes for himself, therefore the egoist's freedom, rides with full sails. Donated freedom strikes its sails as soon as there comes a storm, or calm, it requires always a gentle and moderate breeze. Here lies the difference between self-liberation and emancipation, manumission, setting free. Those who today stand in the opposition are thirsting and screaming to be set free. The princes are to declare their peoples of age, that is, emancipate them. Behave as if you were of age, and you are so without any declaration of majority. If you do not behave accordingly, you are not worthy of it, and would never be of age even by a declaration of majority. When the Greeks were of age, they drove out their tyrants, and when the son is of age, he makes himself independent of his father. If the Greeks had waited till their tyrants graciously allowed them their majority, they might have waited long. A sensible father throws out a son who will not come of age, and keeps the house to himself. It serves the noodle right. The man who is set free is nothing but a freed man, a libertinus, a dog dragging a piece of chain with him. He is an unfree man in the garment of freedom, like the ass in the lion's skin. Emancipated Jews are nothing bettered in themselves, but only relieved as Jews, although he who relieves their condition is certainly more than a churchly Christian, as the latter cannot do this without inconsistency. But, emancipated or not emancipated, Jew remains Jew. He who is not self-freed is merely an emancipated man. The Protestant state can certainly set free, emancipate, the Catholics, but because they do not make themselves free, they remain simply Catholics. Selfishness and unselfishness have already been spoken of. The friends of freedom are exasperated against selfishness because in their religious striving after freedom, they cannot free themselves from that sublime thing, self-renunciation. The liberal's anger is directed against egoism, for the egoist, you know, never takes trouble about a thing for the sake of the thing, but for his sake. The thing must serve him. It is egoistic to ascribe to no thing a value of its own, an absolute value, but to seek its value in me,
One often hears that pot-boiling study, which is so common, counted among the most repulsive traits of egoistic behavior because it manifests the most shameful desecration of science. But what is science for but to be consumed? If one does not know how to use it for anything better than to keep the pot boiling, then his egoism is a petty one indeed, because this egoist's power is a limited power. But the egoistic element in it and the desecration of science only a possessed man can blame. Because Christianity, incapable of letting the individual count as an ego, thought of him only as a dependent, and was properly nothing but a social theory, a doctrine of living together, and that of man with God as well as of man with man, therefore in it everything own must fall into most woeful disrepute, selfishness, self-will, ownness, self-love, and the like. The Christian way of looking at things has on all sides gradually re-stamped honorable words into dishonorable. Why should they not be brought into honor again? So, shimp, contumely, is in its old sense equivalent to jest. But for Christian seriousness, pastime became a dishonor. For that seriousness cannot take a joke. Frech, impudent, formerly meant only bold, brave. Frevel, wanton outrage, was only daring. It is well known how askance the word reason was looked at for a long time. Our language has settled itself pretty well to the Christian standpoint, and the general consciousness is still too Christian not to shrink in terror from everything unchristian as from something incomplete or evil. Therefore, selfishness is in a bad way too. Selfishness in the Christian sense means something like this. I look only to see whether anything is of use to me as a sensual man. But is sensuality then the whole of my ownness? Am I in my own senses when I am given up to sensuality? Do I follow myself, my own determination, when I follow that? I am my own only when I am master of myself, instead of being mastered, either by sensuality or by anything else, God, man, authority, law, state, church, what is of use to me, this self-owned or self-appertaining one, my selfishness pursues? Besides, one sees himself every moment compelled to believe in that constantly blasphemed selfishness as an all-controlling power. In the session of February 10, 1844, Velker argues a motion on the dependence of the judges and sets forth in a detailed speech that removable, dismissible, transferable, and pensionable judges, in short, such members of a court of justice as can by mere administrative process be damaged and endangered, are wholly without reliability, yes, lose all respect and all confidence among the people. The whole bench, Velker cries, is demoralized by this dependence. In blunt words, this means nothing else than that the judges find it more to their advantage to give judgment as the ministers would have them than to give it as the law would have them. How is that to be helped? Perhaps by bringing home to the judges' hearts the ignominiousness of their venality, and then cherishing the confidence that they will repent and henceforth prize justice more highly than their selfishness? No, the people does not soar to this romantic confidence, for it feels that selfishness is mightier than any other motive. Therefore, the same persons who have been judges hitherto may remain so, however thoroughly one has convinced himself that they behaved as egoists. 
Only they must not any longer find their selfishness favored by the venality of justice, but must stand so independent of the government that, by a judgment in conformity with the facts, they do not throw into the shade their own cause, their well-understood interest, but rather secure a comfortable combination of a good salary with respect among the citizens. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette.